What's up, sports fans? My name is Lucas Weiss, host of the Wee Sports Chronicles podcast. We got a great episode for you today with Ryan Clark. He's the Seattle Kraken writer for The Athletic. In this episode, I chat with Ryan about a bunch of different topics from covering the Kraken franchise that doesn't drop the puck until 2022, the viability of hockey in Seattle and how this franchise will cultivate a new fan base, as well as Ryan's sports media career and his article on Jacob Slavin's adopted black child, which ended up being one of the Athletic's best articles of 2020. So if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend you doing so. We dig deep into that, as well as Ryan's work with the Professional Hockey Writers Association in terms of promoting inclusiveness and diversity into the sport of hockey and hockey media. This is the last episode before Christmas, and if if you do celebrate Christmas, I want to wish you and yours a safe and wonderful holiday. I understand it's been a challenging year for so many people, so I hope that this podcast has provided you with an escape and some solace and some education on sports and the sports media landscape. As always, you can find the We Sports Chronicles podcast on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, so make sure to like, rate, watch, and subscribe to all three of those channels. Now, without further ado, let's get to today's episode with Ryan Clark on the Wii Sports Chronicles podcast. All right, as I said off the top, I am pleased to be joined by Ryan Clark. He's not just any hockey writer. He is the Seattle Kraken writer for The Athletic, and he joins me today on the Wii Sports Chronicles podcast. Ryan, welcome, and did I release some of that Kraken spirit within you with that intro? Yeah. Well, hey, I, I feel like you're gonna hear that, uh, you know, more, more and more until uh, the, the the Seattle Kraken officially drop the puck. But hey, listen, congrats on congrats on this new gig because I think like it's it must be really ex- exciting for you to to be back in in Seattle. So maybe we'll just start there, Ryan. I mean, I know you've been you know spending a couple years covering the Colorado Avalanche, the NHL, but. Just what this opportunity means for you to be covering a brand new franchise. I mean, that's just it. Is it's something new? Because when you think about other teams that have been in existence, let's say, except for the Golden Knights, I mean, everything's been pretty established. And it's mm-hmm. stuff that, like, I think people just might take for granted. So it's stuff like, what does a TV deal look like? Is everybody so used to watching teams on certain networks? So that's something new. And how do the Kraken navigate the draft, especially draft like this year where – Scouts might not be able to watch prospects in person or, you know, you look at something like the World Juniors, which is such an important event for scouting purposes. Like, how do you go about handling something like that when access is going to be restricted? Or what do you do with European scouts? And so, like, if you are a team, let's say, like the Philadelphia Flyers, have been in existence for decades upon decades, not that anyone can afford a bad draft class, but that's the organization that, hey, look, they've got other draft classes they can rely upon to really fill that need if something goes awry with your 2021 crop, whereas if the Kraken, this is it. Mm-hmm. And not only is this it, but they've got to build this from the ground floor in the sense of, like, 
when you look at their analytics staff, like they have to build their own database. They have <laughs> to build their own prospect list. It isn't like they had years upon years of viewing. So all of it is new. And so just all that stuff is just so interesting, among other things about the Kraken. Well, you mentioned the the analytics, and, and you actually wrote a really compelling piece for the Athletic just about their analytics department and how it's you know becoming without even the crack in beginning, it's becoming one of the largest analytics departments. So, I'm just curious. I mean, why did they decide? I mean, to go in that direction. I mean, obviously, analytics is becoming such a more integral part of the game, but it's clear that they're trying to build an advantage already, even before the franchise uh, begins. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where when you look at one of the first moves the Kraken made, it was Alexander Mandricki, because they felt like um, analytics could be something that they could really use and benefit from. And so when you look at what they've done so far, like analytics has been a massive part of it, even going back to Ron Francis, because, I mean, it's the now famous story of how Alexander Mandricki, they hired her with the idea that we want you to put together a model that looks for the perfect GM with the idea that the GM might move on from you if he feels like there's someone else he wants to hire. And so, of course, we go with Ron Francis. Ron Francis and Alex just, they get along more than well. And Ron loves having her there and vice versa. And so they decide to build out the staff. And, you know, what they did is they just said, like, let's do more than just analytics. Like, let's take advantage of this in a lot of ways. And the highest best represents that is someone like Nanita Nanda Kumar. So, she was someone who was known in hockey circles for her public work on analytics, but then she went to go work for the Philadelphia Eagles. Mm-hmm. And the thing that the Kraken are going to be able to use with someone like Namita and her background is she's been in another sport and she can view things extremely differently. So with her, you know, looking at prospects in the draft, she has this experience of saying, if we need to go find a boundary corner, let's look at from the top conferences, like the Southeastern Conference and the Atlantic Coast down to the Southland Conference. And it's no different than hey, if you want to go find you know, a puck-moving defenseman, do you go major junior? Do you go to Europe? Do you go to the NCAA? Is there someone kicking around in the NAHL that people aren't necessarily aware of? And so to be able to have that and be able to draw on different experiences, like that's what makes the five-person team the Kraken has built such an intriguing one is because there are so many possibilities. And you mentioned earlier about the whole prospect evaluation process and how it could be hindered because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And look, Ryan, I mean, you know, if the NHL season, you know, starts up again, it may be an all-Canadian division and the border is still closed. So that's going to present some challenges. So from your reporting or, or knowledge, how, how how are the Kraken sort of handling and, and combating these challenges to try to gain uh, an edge over the competition? I think it's, it's fair to say maybe a realistic optimism in the sense of like there were some things they were able to do pre-pandemic. So when you have scouts in place like Cami Granado, it allows you to get some live viewings on players that you would look at in the expansion draft. Ron Francis, Rick Olchek, they had also done some scouting as well. So like those are some things they were able to do. But at this point, it's really being able to rely on the experience you have with your scouting staff. And so when you look at the people they've hired, like Robert Cron. I mean, Robert Cron was someone who was in Carolina for several years. I mean, he was part of the staff that saw Sebastian Ajo, Martin Natosh, um, some young man named Svechnikov that no one ever <laughs> talked about. But to be serious, like, it's relying on that, but it's also the idea, too, of, like, there has to be the understanding that, like, on one hand, while everyone in the NHL is in this situation, talking to a front office person today, you know, this person was saying, like, yeah, 
it's the same situation across the league. It doesn't matter what club you're in. But on the flip, it's just it's that whole idea of like this is so critical because this is a foundational point. So for the Kraken, it's just it's looking at all the plans that they can, trying to like I guess not use a buzzword of optimize, but make the most of the situation, and then just say to yourself like hey, look, this is what we have. Let's go with it. And if we're going to go with it, let's make sure that we've ran it through the numbers several times over so we can make the best decision. But Lucas, as you know, I mean, especially with something like the draft, you can have all these well-laid plans, but hmm. if someone takes somebody that you weren't expecting, then that changes everything. And then it becomes more chaotic than anything. No doubt. Eh? And, you know, when when chaos happens, that's when uh, journalists and writers, they, they love that. You know, get, you know, it, it's good for the content. But... It's interesting though, Ryan, because we we have that vantage point of the Vegas Golden Knights, you know, being a few years old now. But we remember that first season they had going to the Stanley Cup Final, which was unheard of for an expansion franchise. Normally, expansion fri- franchises take a few years to get it in, in a competitive spot. But do you do you get a sense from your knowledge of, of around the league that teams are going to pay more attention to that expansion draft to ensure that the Kraken may not get? you know, some of the players that the Vegas Golden Knights got that struck gold for them? Pre-COVID, maybe. But even then, it's so hard to say because there's different factors like free agency that could play Mm -hmm. part. So, like, let's take a team like the Edmonton Oilers, for example. The Oilers have got a lot of financial considerations to make going into the next offseason. I mean, Ryan Nugent Hopkins is in need of a new deal. Adam Larson the same. And then it's the question of, is this a one-off for Tyson Berry, or does Tyson Berry play well enough there for them to say, maybe let's try to facilitate <laughs> something, or let's look at Tampa Bay, the Tampa Bay Lightning. I mean, that's a team that they've got all sorts of cap things to consider. Yep. So you're always going to have those teams, but what makes this different is, of course, it is the flat cap. Yep. Um, I mean, the fact that we already saw this past summer, guys like Vladislav Nemesnikov, come off of making $4 million annually over the last two, and now he's making $2 million annually over the next two. It's an example of how like, teams aren't going to be able to do the things they once did. And if you're the Kraken, that's something that you can take advantage of. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as, like, hey, does a team want to be, frankly, to be blunt, the next Florida Panthers, where you look back and go, was letting go Bradley Smith and Jonathan Marsh is so the best move? Probably not, but there are going to be some cases where even with all the best laid plans, that still might happen when you look at like certain teams. So like, let's take the Chicago Blackhawks, for example. I mean, right now, when you look at our, our beat writers mock uh, expansion draft list of who they think will be protected, Connor Murphy's on the outside looking in. I mean, if he can find a six foot four right-handed shot defenseman, people are going to take that. So what's saying, so what's stopping the Blackhawks from saying, Hey, let's work out a trade to say we can keep Connor Murphy or maybe Connor Murphy does leave or, what if something changes in the season and Connor Murphy's the player who stays? So I know it's kind of a long answer, but it has to be that way because just no one knows. There's no definitive right now in terms of this is how this is going to work one way or the other. I'm sure you'd love uh, to see the crack and uh, go to the Stanley Cup final in, 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 in their first season, just like uh, the Vegas Golden Knights. It, honestly, it would make no difference to me mm. because like, it's one of those things where you know, if it was all about, you know, making sure oh, I get to go cover Stanley Cup early, then like, yeah, why would you be covering the Colorado Avalanche? Yeah. They're a team that people think could win it all, and they have arguably the best player in the league with Nathan McKinnon. I mean, it's between him or Connor McDavid at this yeah. point. So really, 
it's just more about doing the best journalism, just of course. like not being funny, but covering high school football in Texas, it's just like, yeah, you learned early. Like, is it more about the teams that win or more about kind of telling the best story mm-hmm. and doing really good work? Because I'll say this to stop talking, but like Michael Russo is arguably the best beat writer in the NHL, and he has covered a team that has not even come close to winning a Stanley <laughs> Cup, but it doesn't take away from the work he's done. So that's kind of how you have to look at it. No, absolutely, and 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 you make a good point about telling the best stories, and I think you're in a really interesting position, Ryan, because again, like the the fans in Seattle, like this is a brand new experience for them, and you're going to be part of making, you know, going along that journey with them and telling the stories of a brand new franchise. So, do you, I mean, for you, do you get the sense that? you may have, you know, an easier job because you're going to be, you know, you're already well connected with so many people in the Kraken compared to someone, let's say, starting out on a team that's already so well established with, you know, tons of reporters and journalists, let's say like the Toronto Maple Leafs, for example. I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to say because, I mean, the Leafs and the Kraken are two different teams because like, for example, Seattle, while it's had the NHL, it hasn't been here in 100 years. Yeah. And so you're talking about a market that, like, hockey is still new to a lot of people. And so, like, it's having to do things, because we've had fans ask, like, hey, are you guys going to do something about, like, here are the rules of the game or how to watch a game or, like, what are things like icing that, you know, look, if you grew up in a traditional hockey market, you kind of already know and <laughs> you take for granted. But the other difference is that, like, with something like Toronto, I mean – and I mean, like you and I were saying before recording, like Toronto's the second home to me. And so, like, for example, let's say a prospect, like, I don't know, someone like Timoshoff, when that was a thing, has a good game, people in Toronto are losing their mind. Yeah. This be a thing. And it's not to say that Seattle won't be eventually like that, but it's a little bit of a different process in the sense of, like, people will care about prospects, but it's going to be more about what does this team do now? What does this team look like now? Like, is this a team that when you look at the Pacific division and the fact that San Jose is going through issues, Anaheim and Los Angeles are on a rebuild, the Coyotes seem like they're somewhere in the middle, so to say, like, what does that mean for the Kraken going forward? Then it'll be kind of more of those things where if a prospect pops off, then sure. Cause like I look at Colorado, for example, so it was 2018-2019. That team was going near a downward slide. The attention for Avs fans shifted to Kale McCarr. Mm. And all of a sudden, the Avs started winning. They get into the playoffs. And then you have this world of Kale McCarr, this world of them making the playoffs. And if I had a third hand, so let's say this hand, <laughs> is the world of, hey, they might get Jack Hughes, but they really had the fourth pick that became Bowen Byram on top of the 16th pick that became Alex Newhook. It was just all these <laughs> things coming together. So, yeah, I think with Seattle, like, there will be some of that, but it'll be different than Toronto just because, like, with the Leafs, you've had, God, decades of buildup, whereas with Seattle, it's like everything is new. Well, maybe maybe a better comparison would be sort of like the Vegas Golden Knights because I remember, like, before Vegas began, like, there was this, there was constant chatter, oh, can hockey work in Vegas? It's the desert. Are people going to be interested? And look how that turned out. Like, you know, so much passion electricity amongst that fan base so I guess it's early to tell Ryan but from your experience in in Seattle what do you think having a hockey team there will do for for the Seattle fans which is a sports city like you have the Seahawks and and you know hopefully you get a basketball team back there the Seattle Mariners so it's it, it is a sports market 
Well, the thing about Seattle is this. Like, it's a place where people care a lot about sports. And I know people come and think about the Seahawks and the Mariners, and rightly so, but, like, the Storm are a thing in this For city. sure. Husky football, Husky basketball is a thing in this city, men and women. Um, you look at Seattle University, people pay attention to them. Washington State on the other side of the state. There's Gonzaga, which is also on the other side of the state. You have um, the rain as well in the women's soccer league. So, I mean, like, it's a place that has everything, but people here are genuinely looking forward to it because it goes back to the question of what fills that winter sports void. And so the way it works here in Seattle is let's take January 1st. Like, in a normal year, and I can't stress that enough, <laughs> yep. a normal year, you're concerned with what's going on with Washington and Washington State with bowl games and recruiting and then with basketball, but there's not really a true pro sports fight until spring training with the Mariners. And then the Mariners the last few years, aside from one, usually by like, let's say May, June, you kind of know what they are. And it's something where people are starting to long for other things. So like you're watching the storm, you're paying attention to the rain, you're looking forward to the Seahawks. Whereas if with the Kraken coming along, they're going to be able to fill that void and you're going to have that overlap where it's going to overlap with the Seahawks. It's going to be the dominant thing in winter now that that space has been open since the Sonics left. And then it's going to be able to overlap with Mariners season along with the storm. So it, it makes the sports calendar here a lot more complete. And not only that, but you look around, you see people with hats, hoodies, um, mm. everything. Like they're all already excited about the crack. And in fact, like when we checked in to our hotel when we were moving here from Denver, um, the woman working the front counter was really nice and she was like oh what brings you here i'm like oh we're moving and my job she's like what do you do and i told her and she's like oh my god like my friends and i want to get season tickets and if you're just kind of like damn even in the pandemic <laughs> i want to watch them right now so that's seattle well, I can't wait for that opening game. Like, I mean, I, I remember Vegas and what they do for their pregame, you know, ceremony and ritual. But, like, I feel like the Krakens is going to be, like, I feel like it's going to be next level, Ryan. It's going to be quite exciting. It's, it's going to be interesting because they hired Johnny Greco, who he had been with Vegas, and he was with Madison Square Garden. And he's going to be the person responsible for handling that. So it's going to be interesting because I think, like, when you look at Vegas and you look at New York, those are two cities where entertainment is a thing, but they do it so differently. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, it's like, for people who may not be familiar with Seattle, I mean, like, you sit there and you talk about entertainment and music, and, and yes, the usual suspects come up of Jimi Hendrix and Nirvana and Pearl Jam, but, like, this is the same city that is the home of, like, Quincy Jones. Like, this yeah. is the same city that is the home of Odessa. Um, so, like, it's something that, like, entertainment means a lot to people here. So I'm sure they'll find an interesting way to like make it work and happen that like it stands out, but if it's uniquely Seattle as well. For sure. And and, and I also think too, Ryan, is you know, the potential of a of a Crock and Canucks rivalry. I mean, it, it is massive. I mean and look, hockey's defined by rivalry rivalries. Leafs Habs, Flames Oilers, Habs Bruins. Do you think in a few years, like Canucks Kraken could be one of the top rivalries in the NHL? You know, it's hard to say because, like, we see the geography and you think it should be. But then, like, we look at what was the best rivalry of the 90s, arguably. Colorado and Detroit. Like, yeah. Are geographically nowhere near one another. Or, like, when you look at the Sharks and you look at the Golden Knights, like, it's a rivalry that develops, like, really, really quickly. And so, like, it's, it's interesting to say Vancouver, and, I mean, it makes it it makes a ton of sense just because the proximity but what's fascinating is when you look at those two cities 
it never really had that before because like let's look at the Sounders for mm-hmm. example which again another example of a team that people go ape over here yeah. in this city like there's the Sounders and then there's the Whitecaps and like with those two it's kind of they're there but it's not really a thing because like if you're going to say okay do the Sounders have a Canadian rival oh god it's TFC yeah, of course I mean, it, just, it, 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 it is Mm-hmm. But, like, when you look at other times when there's been some crossover, like, the Grizzlies and Sonics played each other. But, like, if there was a rivalry, you could argue it was more maybe Portland and Seattle. Yeah. So, to see how this works, I mean, maybe that's the case. Um, but, I mean, who's to say that their rival might not be someone else? Because, I mean, you know this better than anyone. Like, two teams could just be random teams and then just one event and all of a sudden, boom, a rivalry yeah. is born. Like, Colorado and Minnesota, like, that one playoff series changed everything. So it's just, or better yet, take Pittsburgh and Washington. Yeah. Or Crosby and Ovechkin. Like, yeah, there were some fierce games, but it not it's not like it is now where it's like, you pick one side of that rivalry, you can't stray over. Yeah, like it's sort of even like in Toronto, like we obviously have the traditional rivalries, Montreal, Ottawa, but like Toronto-Boston is sort of the rivalry right now, just given the, the history in the playoffs. And now they Absolutely. did they did meet in, they were original six and they met in the 60s. But for recent, like that's been the recent rivalry. And Toronto-Montreal, like while it's historic and whatnot, it hasn't had that same, you know, it hasn't had a playoff series in so long. So it, so it is really interesting when you think of these rivalries, like it could just happen overnight and boom, it's a rivalry. It doesn't really matter the, the geographical distance. No, I mean, it doesn't. And, like, that's the hard part. I mean, like, we talk about the Stanley Cup, and I think we all think back to 2011 with Boston and Vancouver, where yeah. it's like that became a thing. And so to see what's really going to happen with Seattle, I mean, like, who's to say? I mean, this is probably the worst joke to make, but I'm kind of curious what a, a rivalry would look like with them and the Coyotes, just because, like, there have been so many people from Washington who they're like, I'm being priced out of my home. So I can leave the <laughs> Like maybe it's something like that where like maybe Coyotes fans are just like there's too many Washingtonians here, so let's cheer against the Kraken or who knows. But like that just doesn't think you can throw a dart and say what's stopping them from having a rivalry with the Panthers or whomever. So we'll see. But it looks like the Canucks would be the odds-on favorite. But then again, we shouldn't talk about odds-on favorite because gambling is bad. Yeah. There you go. It's why I brought you on, Ryan. There you go with the helpful uh, with the helpful PSAs. But it's all about the kids. No, of course, of course. Um, it's it's interesting though, Ryan. I mean, in, in your position now as as a as a Kraken writer, I mean, it, it is some quite some time between you know when the puck drops and and, and they get going. So. Without revealing all the state secrets, I mean, what's what's sort of going to be your role this year? You know, with the upcoming season and how, again, strange and unprecedented it's going to be. It's it's not a bubble, but but certainly, um, you know, it, it'll be interesting, no less. Let's say it's thinking about the hockey stuff that you would expect a reporter to think about, but it's hopefully trying to think about those things that are different. And so, like, let's take the television contract because that's a story that's already out there. I can talk about a mass and it's no massive state secret. Like that's something that if you're in a market where you've already had a team, it's just like, okay, great. But like if you're in Seattle, like, yeah, that's a good question. Where are you going to watch them? Are they going to be on route? Is Amazon a possibility? Cause they already have a partnership with Amazon. Where are they going to be on radio? And like the reason something like that matters even more, a couple of things. One, you look at the changing landscape and if you ever want to like take an interesting read, 
go to like the Dish Network site and like mm. they will have like a list of like here are channels where loggerheads over because people just don't think it's fair to you know have to pay the full freight of a sports network if you're someone who doesn't watch sports. It's the same if you're someone who watches sports, but you're like, why am I paying for QVC? I never mm. watch QVC. Well, QVC by comparison is super cheap because it's not paying like billions upon billions for a rights deal and it got to get that money somehow. And, and, and how do you think that happens? And so like, it's things like that, explaining how the business works, why it's important. And then the other thing to do is like covering the avalanche, which this might sound bizarre. If you're a Comcast subscriber who lives in Denver, unless it's been on NBC, you've not watched the Colorado avalanche <laughs> in more than a year because they are at, you know, a contract loggerhead with Comcast to the point where like, it is actually in a court of law. There is a civil <laughs> suit that has been filed. And so, like, it's just trying to get people to understand that, like, it's stuff that, like, elsewhere you might not think about or take for granted that here, like, they genuinely have to think about. So, you know, look, the goal is to try to do the best story possible. There's going to be some things that make people think. There's going to be some things that probably make people angry. There's going to be some things that are probably going to make people laugh. But, like, at the end of the day, it's just about how do you tell the best stories leading up to what will be one of the biggest moments in Seattle sports history. I want to pivot to to your experience covering the, the, the you know the Stanley Cup playoffs th- this past season sure. and, and 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 I mean obviously it's been a few months now and and you know since since the whole bubble experience and I've had several writers on the show Ryan who who've sort of talked about the the differences of covering sports amidst the pandemic the challenges so I'm just curious for you when when you look back on this experience I mean what was it like for you and and, and how does it sort of rank in terms of the moments in your career, I mean, covering this, this weird, unprecedented experience. You know, Lucas, that's be funny. I just don't really think about like, where do you rank something like this? Just because I mean, this is going to sound really hokey and I apologize, but I just think that like, when you look at what's going on in the world, yeah, like it's just, it's cool just to be able to have a job and yeah. not only have a job, but like have a job at a time when like other people don't. And so like, I don't really think about it in the sense of like, where would I rank this? And plus it wasn't that long ago. Like I was a person in Richmond, Indiana, making $12 and 30 cents an hour covering crime and high school basketball, just wondering if I'd ever do it. So like, just for me, it's all been really something I'm grateful for. But in terms of covering it, you know, I know for people like doing interviews on Zoom, like was a challenge because it's this whole idea of, you're not really able to get anything that's maybe unique and that's something the whole beat has to have. But it was to be true with you, it was very similar to covering college football. So before mm. I covered the NHL, I covered Florida State University for two years and the University of Washington for eight months. And, you know, the experience there is you might be able to get one-on-ones every now and again, but if you're talking to the head coach, what he's saying, everyone's hearing. If you're talking to the mm. quarterback, what he's saying, everyone is hearing. Um, and at a place like Florida State, I mean – very rarely are you getting one-on-ones with Dalvin Cook and Derwin James and Jalen Ramsey. And I mean, that kind of says it all. And, and, and with Washington, same thing with someone like Miles Gaskin or Vita Vea. And so it's just, you just try to do as much planning as you can. Try to look at things that are differently. Say, what analysis can you do that you hope not everyone else is thinking about, but if they are, you tell it in a way that maybe presents something a little bit different. So for me personally, it, it wasn't, a hard time. I would just say like the only difficult part about it um, was just like, yeah, you wish like in some ways you could be there, yeah. but at the end of the day, like 
if you're able to do the job, that's all that really matters. No, of course. And, and, and you know, a lot of great points there. And, and speaking, I mean, you made a point about trying to tell a different and, and unique story. And, and I want to talk about a story where it, it actually got included in the Athletics Best of 2020. And congratulations, by the way. It, it's it's The title is, It's Because of Emerson, Jacob and Kylie Slavin's love for their child shifted their reality. And it's, you know, oh, tr- you. truly one of the, you know, the best pieces I've read in, in 2020. And I think it's so great it's because it's a story that, again, I mean, not many people would, would know about. And it's certainly an angle that, you know, you, you definitely did a lot of reporting and really, you know, included very important detail to make it a really compelling story. So maybe we'll just start, Ryan, like, how did you come across this, you know, this story and, and, and this topic in general? Sure. I mean, the story itself was probably more than a year in the making because mm. Jacob Slavin is from Erie, which it's a Denver suburb. And so the summer of 20... 19, which, sorry to look up and say that. <laughs> it feels like a whole eternity ago, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, back then when Coca-Cola was a nickel. Um, <laughs> no, so it was summer 2019, and uh, Jacob held a camp at the University of Colorado that I went and covered just to write a profile on him. And so there was a moment... Um, between the camp where like his wife was there and I got a chance to meet her and Kylie's just one of the best people you're going to meet. And like they had their daughter Emerson and like when they brought her out of um, her stroller, it's like you saw like, wow, this is a white couple with a black daughter. And like, you have something that was like really interesting, but at the same time, like, are, is that a conversation people were willing to have? Mm. And so it's just something like I just filed in the back of my head. And so um, whenever, Carolina played Colorado like I'd always make the point to go talk to Jacob and just a really good guy and and so then when you start seeing more players speak out about George Floyd he talked about you know look he went to Instagram and said look being a white parent of a black daughter like this makes you realize a, a lot of different things and so I, I reached out to the Hurricanes and said hey I want to do this story um, with Jacob and his wife like do you think that we can make that happen and Hurricanes were like, yeah, let's ask. And so Jacob was like, it was no problem at all. And so initially it started off as kind of a story that was just like, hey, here's what's going on, so on and so forth. And then the night before it ran, one of our higher up editors took a look at it and said, no, we could do a lot more with this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it turned into a process where it was like two months of like, it was like, if it wasn't like every other day, it was let's say twice a week where like I'm talking with Jacob and Kylie about different nuanced items. Um, I was talking with uh, an adoption attorney about like how does transracial adoption work and you know all these different things. And there's a woman I spoke to, Valerie Arnett, who she runs a Facebook group that the Slavens are a part of that talk about transracial adoption. And it's these questions about how do things work like hair in social settings? Because I mean, at the end of the day, like while Emerson Slaven is going to grow up the black daughter raised by two white people, her father's going to be a hockey player with affluence and wealth. And how does something like that add to the dynamic? Mm. And so it was just trying to do a story that like encapsulated all of this. Why this couple felt the need to adopt? Um, like was having a child of a different race, something that was a, a non-starter or was it like, no, we were all for it. And so 
it, it turned out to be a story that just, you know, when it ran, I mean, it ran at a time when the NHL was having this discussion on race and, you know, to sit there and look at how it turned out. Um, I mean, so it's kind of surprising, like that many people really, you know, really appreciated and liked it. And, you know, I had a conversation with Jacob and Kylie the other day about it. And it's just, it's wild. Cause like now you see the video of like Jacob playing with his daughter that went <laughs> big on hockey Twitter earlier this week. And it's just, it's, it's kind of wild to sit there and think like, you know, these are the sort of stories that like we're doing and we can talk about because a year ago it, Mm. just kind of wondered like would there be the market for that because it made people uncomfortable whereas if now while it still might like it's a discussion that people feel needs to be had for sure and, and, and a lot to unpack from that answer but but the one thing i want to follow up is that is that thing that you just said about how it was going to run and then the editor says no we're not going to run we got to change this so what is that like for a writer then? Because you obviously, you know, you're working on this and then you're about to run and then the editor says, oh, no, we got to make this better. Like, so do you get into like another like mode? Like, how do you approach that, you know, sudden change? Well, that story was different just because, you know, earlier in the week, there was a story that I did with Evander Kane about what's this like. Of course. And then a story I did with white NHLers like Tyler Sagan and Brian Boyle, Connor Carrick. Um, about just kind of what this is like for them. And so to have an editor come like that week, it was it was probably not the thing I wanted to hear, not because it was some sort of like professional pride, but hmm. it was just more, and I'm probably saying more than I should hear, but like <laughs> it's the stress of dealing with those stories. And it's yeah. the stress of that week is like at The Athletic, um, we were having some very serious conversations about race. Yeah. It's not just on the NHL vertical, but everywhere. Yeah. And um, it's people coming to you asking how to write about race, what questions to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, it's friends coming to you, both in this industry and out of this industry, um, wanting to talk about things. And by the time like it got to that point with the story, they were just like, do you want to do this? And I'm like, honestly, my wife just got home with little teasers. I really don't give a damn. Just do what you want to do. <laughs> Um, but like, it was a process that like, don't get me wrong. It was painstaking. Um, but in some ways it really needed to be because like, this is the kind of story you don't take lightly. No. So yeah, I mean, it wasn't like a necessarily an ego thing. It was just more like by the time we had that conversation that week, it was just like, well, the world is burning down. Yeah. I don't want to think about anything else though. You know? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. And and I find it, you know, interesting, especially when interviewing writers about, you know, doing these long form features is getting the interview subjects to a place where they feel comfortable to reveal, you know, intricate details. And to me, the sort of lead block where, where you know, Jacob and Kylie are at this grocery store and there's, you know, that, you know, the sudden questions that, that come with, you know, you know, a white couple with a black child. I mean, how did you, I guess, get... I mean, get them to a place where they could feel comfortable to, to to reveal this this information that again, you know, provides real great detail for for the story. I mean, being a human might sound like the worst answer, but I think that's yeah. it. And I mean, like it's it's sitting down with people when you do a story like that, and you say, This is what the story is, but at the end of the day, what you feel like you want to share is completely up to you. And you just try to be respectful of that because like, I think it's one thing if you're doing a story about something of like a much more serious significance, like if someone has a criminal background, 
clearly it's a lot different. Mm. But with something like this, where you're asking people to share part of themselves, like you just try to be respectful of understanding whatever they feel comfortable with. And so, you know, it was just asking like, what were these experiences you had? And they were very good about sharing and opening up with that. And it, it turned into a, I would say a really productive discussion about just kind of, you know, this has been their experience. And not only has this been their experience, but you know, this is what it was like for them to go through it. And um, it's just, it's them trusting you and you trusting yourself to make sure you do right by people like this. Because I mean, like, look, don't get me wrong. It goes like something a professor of mine said at university, which was you can show a thousand people a photo of the ocean and someone's going to find something wrong with it. And, you know, with the Slavins in this story, one thing they were very conscious of is like, they didn't want to be looked at as white saviors. And depending upon how this story could have been framed, it could have easily turned out that way. And even though we did not write it that way and was not presented that way, because for them, that is the last thing they are. Like, there are still people who read the story who felt like, well, this is a white favor story. And, you know, that's something you try to keep in mind where it's like, you want to present this in the most fair, accurate, realistic way, but you do it knowing that just because one person sees it one way, the rest of the world's going to see it differently, potentially. So I think that's probably it. Yeah, and and pivoting away from the story, but keeping, you know, you know, the topic of, of race in mind. I mean, obviously, you know, a, you know, a, a, cha- I mean, a difficult, challenging year where a lot of these conversations, you know, occurred. You know, as a result of George Floyd's death, and and, and you mentioned some of the stories that you wrote on Evander Kane and some of the white NHL players. And I had Arpon Basu on the podcast, who you know is a colleague of yours at the Athletic, also working as the co-chair of the Inclusion Committee at the Professional Hockey Writers Association, and he was talking about some of the... I wonder initi- who his co-chair is. Yeah, there you go, right? You know, right right, right here. And, and you know, I, I now got uh, the complete uh, committee to the two co-chairs. So, and, you know, he was just talking about some of the initiatives that, that, that you know, that, that are going to be happening. And I'm just curious for you, Ryan, because, you know, look, it was, you know, such a big moment, you know, May, June, July, August, where these conversations were at the forefront. But, I mean, how do we keep this going? And, you know, you know, in terms of, you know, using, you know, hockey as the lens, because now it's, you know, the end of the year and we're heading into 2021. But a lot of the things that were said, it needs to needs to keep happening to 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 achieve positive change. The short answer, honestly, Lucas, is just continue self-awareness because the reality of it is there are times where and it doesn't matter who you are you can see something in front of you and you're like wow this is important but like anything it has the potential to be out of sight out of mind yeah and when it comes to something like racism you know with george floyd the answer of what made this different is because well when other incidents like mike brown or trayvon martin have happened there wasn't covid that was going on yeah and you didn't have people who were forced to sit in one place and stay in one place. And with Mike, excuse me, with George Floyd, you, you had that. With Mike Brown, it was large enough, clearly, but it wasn't that. People still had the freedom to do whatever they want. With George Floyd, like, it was really inescapable, and it made people have some really serious discussions. And, you know, right now, it's just in terms of how do you keep that going. Um, I mean, it's awareness. It's asking questions mainly of yourself I mean yes it's maybe asking questions of, of people around you but it, it's really just more about understanding why people feel 
the way they do and understanding that like just because you see something one way someone else might see something completely different um and and i think because of that that's how the conversation goes but like there also has to be the understanding too that like frankly don't be surprised if you run into someone who's a person of color who isn't exactly feeling optimistic about this because yeah there were some interviews I did on podcasts and radio where people were like, is this a turning point? And my honest answer was Malcolm X being killed was supposed to be a turning point. Yeah. Edgar Everett, no, Martin of course. King, um, the civil rights movement, Rodney King, uh, Reginald Denny, the LA riots. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the watch riots. I mean, the list goes on and on and, and these weren't. So why would you feel optimism? So, it would, it would be that, but also in terms of like sports and specifically hockey, it's going to be certain things that happen. I mean, we saw what happened with Mitchell Miller. Yeah. And people raised some conversations about like, how does the Arizona Coyotes, a group that is owned by, you know, a Latinx Hispanic owner and Alex Morello with a Hispanic team president, was also Latinx and, and Javier Gutierrez, like, how do they he did this to so it's that continued awareness to be honest no absolutely and like i think that that self-reflection point i think is a really important one and i know i and many others you know during that time being in one place self-reflection was so important and I mean, there were significant, you know, moments with Matt Dumba in the bubble and, and all the players gathering in that press conference at Edmonton. I mean, that that, that was significant. And, and I just think, I mean, and, and Arpon made this point too, is just, you know, also getting more diverse voices speaking about hockey. And, you know, from, from a media perspective as well, I think it, it is certainly, you know, important as well to think about because that's another part of the conversation is, enhancing diversity and enhancing you know people of color voices in in the sport and the athletics doing a great job now of you know they are launching a culture vertical to make sure that you know there's stories being told about sports and culture so like you previously said i mean a year ago these stories would have been uncomfortable and not really talked about but now they may be still uncomfortable but at least like the the conversation is still happening which is so so vital well, but the thing is this, it's like it's not even just about making sure you get more diverse voices, but it's understanding why it's important. Exactly. Right? It's also the idea, too, of just like there has to be times where white writers learn how to have to, they must learn how to write these stories and do these stories. Um, and I think that's just kind of the thing is like, again, there's not going to be one right answer that pleases everybody. Mm-hmm. And there rarely ever is with anything in life, but when it comes to this particular subject, like it's people understanding that this is such a multi-layered discussion that like the best way to explain it is things that might seem like one plus one to someone else might be calculus to someone else. And so like, for example, like my friends, I mean, I'm black and Hispanic, like my friends and I, like we have conversations about this all the time. And like that's friends of mine who are white or black or Hispanic or Asian who are LGBTQ like just this has been our experience as people who've lived all over and done all sorts of things. But like for people who've not had that, like there are some things that they are learning. And mm-hmm. so like right now, like let's take what the news of the day was. It was major league baseball's honoring of the Negro leagues. And people were like, 
this is so cool. But for a lot of people, they're asking, why did it take till 2020 yeah. for this to happen? Exactly. Why did it take for 2020 for tip the cap to happen when the Negro leagues and their impact have been around for generations now. Like, why are you doing this at a time when these men are dying off? Why couldn't you have done this sooner when many of them like Buck O'Neill were still alive and they could have actually had a part in this. And you know, how much of this is placating versus actually doing the right thing. And people have even raised like, so if you had done this earlier, maybe these players could have actually drawn tension and been able to add financial stability to their family. And these are the conversations that are happening. And it might be things that catch people off guard and go, geez, that escalated really quickly. But these have been ideas people have been sitting on for such a long time. It's just now people feel comfortable to say them. And even then they may not be fully comfortable to say them, but like they're at least, they at least feel like maybe I can float out certain concepts as a way to fully getting into that conversation. I want to end Ryan with, with, with a point that you made, you know, earlier about your career and, and how, you know, you've had, you know, different stops along the way, like a lot of journalists, you know, do that's, you know, part of the business and, you know, how you, you know, just a few years back that you were, you know, working for $12 an hour in Richmond, Virginia, covering high school sports. Oh, and no, it, Indiana. I, Indiana. I, I wish it had been Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, look, I mean, this might not be funny, but like, when we talk about like where people start off, everybody thinks like, oh, like it's small towns and, you know, it's got to be this interesting, fun thing. And like with Richmond, Indiana, it was a city that had like second generation drug dealers, third generation wow. welfare recipients in some cases. It was a city that like the high school graduation rate, I want to say was between like 54 and 58% mm-hmm. to the point where Johns Hopkins declared it a diploma mill. And yep. so like, it was a place that at the time of the recession had some real issues. And so it was an interesting experience covering it, but like, that's why like when you look at where you are now and you look at then, it's just kind of like, oh yeah, like these stories of like, oh yeah, like this person had to start here, there and everywhere. It must be fun. It's like, no, you learn real quickly. Like, this is what the world is like. So, oh, yeah. If, if it was Richmond, Virginia, it would have been a little bit different. <laughs> apologies, apologies for that. But, but, oh, but, no, you're fine. But, um, but, but, but my question is, I mean, because of that journey, and like, look, I mean, a lot of people remember where they started. And look, it wasn't the most glamorous. But what do you learn about yourself in that, in those environments that, that makes you a better journalist now in, in your current role? couple things I think, you know, the first is, is just, I feel like don't get caught up in certain things like where you interned or where you went to school. Mm. It's the idea of saying every great lawyer has to go to Harvard or Yale. And that's certainly not true. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other thing too, is just like, at the time you might be angry that you're in these places, but later on, you're going to be able to do things that other people couldn't because they didn't have the same experience. And so like living in Richmond, Indiana, like, and seeing all those different things, like it gives you this experience of being able to not only write about hard news and breaking news, but like you have to learn really quickly how to canvas the city. So when you write these stories, you're able to speak to it in an authoritative way. And like when you then live in places like Beaumont, Texas and Fargo, North Dakota and Miami, Florida and Lansing, Michigan and Tallahassee, Florida, and you see the point I'm going with here is like, it's what makes it easier because it's like you've done this so many times before. Um, and, and that's something that like a lot of people just, you know, they, they simply can't do or they don't think to do. And that's the difference between a good story and a great story. It's the difference between one source and 
in five sources. It's the difference between maybe writing one story on a subject versus 15 or 20. Uh, so I would say like it was, it was kind of learning all those things, but it was just also learning just kind of everything you write, like there's a face to it, you know? And I think sometimes when we write stories, we kind of get guilty of just, it's, it's words on a page or mm. words on your machine or whatever. Whereas if like, when you are working in a small town, like it's not the whole, like everybody knows you thing, but like it is one of those things where like people read the paper and they either love the paper or they hate the paper or they like you or they hate you or like, and it becomes so much more real to where like, it makes you understand, like you can't take this lightly. Last question for you, Ryan. And, and I always save this for last for my guests. If you're going to Seattle, What's the what? Where are some of the go-to restaurants uh, to dine at uh, when it's safe to do so? I was gonna say right now. Not 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 now, not now. But when it's safe to do so, with that big caveat. Um, when it's safe to do so, that's a good one. Um, the first one's kind of touristy, but there's a place called Elliot's, which is in the Pure District um, near Pike Place, and it's one of the best places to go for oysters. Like Ivar's is another one along that area. Um, so that would be really good. Super Six is a Hawaiian spot in um, Columbia City. And then there's Kona Kitchen, which the wild part about Kona Kitchen is, um, did you ever see Karate Kid 2? Of course. Kid? Great. Okay. So you remember Shozen, who was Sato's nephew? Yes, so, of course. So the guy who plays Shozen, he and his wife own Kona Kitchen. Oh, wow. So like, it's kind of, so it's kind of like one of those, like everyone in Seattle knows this, but it's still a secret sort of thing. Mm. Um, so, like, I mean, those would be some really cool places to go check out. Um, I mean, they have these in Canada, but, like, in uh, Seattle, there's Joey Restaurant, which are always good to go check out as well. Um, and, and I would say another good one to kind of end it. I'm probably going to lose my Canadian card for this. <laughs> but the best donut in North America is at a place called Top Hot. Okay. I mean, Top Hot is, it is like legalized crack. I mean, that's the best way uh, to describe it. But no, I mean, Seattle is a, a killer food city with all sorts of fun places. And like, the hard part is you don't want to give away some of them because you don't want other people going Of there. course. But, uh, but, but, uh, but no, I mean, it's, it, it, like, it's something that they do super well here. And also, it doesn't really matter what teriyaki spot you go to, teriyaki thing. Teriyaki is a thing here, mm. um, but a good one would be a spot called I Love Teriyaki. I know, really complicated. <laughs> and I Love Teriyaki is in like Bellevue, and it is really, really good. Some great suggestions, especially when the the world comes goes back to normal, hopefully sometime soon, and and you know to go to if you ever go to Seattle. Ryan Clark, he is the Seattle Kraken writer for the Athletic, so make sure to check out. All of his great hockey content there. Ryan, it was an absolute pleasure for you to come on the We Sports Chronicles podcast. Likewise, thanks for having me.